Heavenly Father, in your Son, Jesus Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Enlighten our minds by your Holy Spirit and grant us that reverence and humility without which no one can understand your truth. Through that same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, on the 5th of April this year, tech-savvy skydiver Mike Lehan, 26, proposed to bubbly blonde student worker Liz Reason, 26. She said, yes. Now, not one to be outdone, Mr. Lehan had managed to persuade some staff from the Royal Exchange Theatre, I believe, to let him propose to Liz on stage with all the lights and bells and whistles going on, therefore setting the bar really high for any subsequent proposals here at our church. And I wasn't there at the time, but I guess it went something like this, Mike. Will you marry me? I will. Now, as a result, a lot of things have changed. A lot of commitments have been made. The first thing, I guess, was that a ring was bought. You can sort of see it twinkling there on the slide. Looks like a diamond to me, Mike. Must have set you back a few, Bob. He's nodding <laughs> soberly. And then, organising a wedding. Searching for venues, booking caterers, printing invitations, sending them, making plans, spending lots of money on things like dresses, flowers, goodness knows what else. Big decisions have to be taken. Which church are we going to go to as a couple? Where are we going to live? Big decisions on future direction are now taken as a couple. They plan to undergo marriage preparation with one of our elders, John Chapman. Anything could happen. <laughs> they have actually bought a house. And one of them is living there, is it Liz? Liz is living in the house. So Mike... You have bought a house with a woman who is not yet your wife. Is that correct? Huge decisions being taken. Based on what? Based on a promise. I will. It's a pretty big promise. Needs a big font. You see, engagement is a promise. Nothing more. The only thing guaranteeing that Mike Lehan won't be standing on his own in St. Philip's Church on the 13th of December, waiting for Liz, is the promise of Liz. I will marry you. And yet, Mike seems pretty confident. He's making all these big life choices and smiling about it with a sort of carefree, happy abandon. Is he mad? <laughs> on what is he basing his confidence? Is he rash and foolish and irresponsible? Well, he does have one thing. He has history. He didn't meet Liz on April the 4th and proposed to her on the 5th somewhere in Las Vegas. He has a shared history with her and therefore he knows her character. And based on that character, he has good reason to believe the promise, I will marry you. Now we are at a crucial point in the story of Exodus this week. Last week we read how Moses and Aaron were emboldened by their encounter with the living God and they went to Pharaoh just as God told them. They took the word of God, the message, and they demanded of Pharaoh, God says, let my people go. 
So they went and demanded, let my people go, and you know what, it could not have gone worse. Far from rolling over and uh, asking them to rub his tummy, Pharaoh stared them out, and then he parked his tanks on Moses' lawn. He turned his wily mind to the Israelites, a slave nation that he was relying on for free labor, and he devised a cruel strategy. He stopped the supply of straw, which they needed to to make bricks in that uh, time of the world's history, and he insisted that they not only continued brick-making, but made the same number, the same quota. And the result was that the people scattered all over Egypt, searching for straw everywhere, and they failed to make their quota of bricks. And then the guys with the big sticks show up, the slave drivers, and they got hold of the Israelite foremen and beat them. And these foremen, like union officials, go to Pharaoh to plead their case. Surely he's going to be reasonable. Evidently not. Like many a corporate boss... Pharaoh is having none of it, and he's already got his um, spin doctors working on a line. The official line is, it's your problem, you're lazy. So these foremen are absolutely furious. They go and find Moses and Aaron, and they probably turn the air blue. Now, if it were written down, it might have turned the book of Exodus from a PG into a 15. Uh, What the boop do you think you're playing at, you crazy old pair of You almost got us killed. That's one way to interpret chapter 5, verse 21. Here's what the Bible says. May the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Now, just put yourself in Moses' shoes for a moment. He has risked everything on this venture. He was all set on a quiet retirement out in the country. Then he heard the voice of God and left his home place he'd lived for decades. He went to a people who did not know him and he faced up to Pharaoh. And then this happens. No wonder he makes this appeal in chapter 5, verse 22 to 23. He's despairing. He brings his tears to the Lord. He says this. Moses returned to the Lord and said, why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people and you have not rescued your people at all. And that's where we left him last week. So what happens next? In the context of despondency and demoralization, what will God do? Just look at the state of the people here in chapter 6, verse 9. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. Discouragement is also translated despondency. The Jewish translation of the Bible, the Tanakh, says their spirits were crushed. They're broken. What is God going to do? Now, if you were Moses, what would you want at this moment? I know what I would want. Instant solutions and instant relief. Take the pain away. I'm an Israelite leader. Get me out of here. But that is not what God does. In the lowest moment, when the night is darkest, here's what God does. He makes a promise. He says, I will. Not just once, but seven times. Look at chapter 6, verse 6 to 8. This is what God says. Therefore, says to the Israel, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. 
I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Now, as we've already thought, saying I will is marriage language. It's commitment. And he says it here seven times. I will. Now, what is God promising? The first three promises are all about salvation, being rescued, redeemed. I will bring you out. I will free you. I will redeem you. Being saved from a desperate situation where you've got no hope. And being set free, the language of emancipation, liberation. I will redeem you is the language in the Old Testament world of the kinsman redeemer. Every family had somebody whose job was to be the kinsman redeemer. So if there was a problem with property or people, that kinsman redeemer would go out and sort the problem out. Maybe having to buy somebody back from slavery or to protect the family's interests. God is saying, I'm going to redeem you like that. I'm going to be your big uncle who looks after you. And he says he's going to do it with an outstretched arm. The arm is a symbol of God's strength and power used of his mighty deeds. So it's language of salvation, but it's also language of marriage. The next two promises, I will take you as my own and I will be your God, are just like the promises in the marriage covenant. God will bind himself to his people as a husband binds himself to his wife, an exclusive, devoted, undying love relationship. And the last two promises are the promises of a home. I will bring you to the land and I will give it to you as a possession. To a people who've been landless, aliens and strangers in Egypt, oppressed, marginalized, with no place to call their own, these are heavenly words. We will have a place to call our own. We will have a home with all of the warmth and the safety and the security and the sense of belonging that the word home evokes. So these seven I wills of Exodus chapter 6 are promises of salvation, promises of a committed relationship, promises of home. You can see why the Bible uses the marriage image for the relationship between God and his people, can't you? And surrounding these promises is a kind of wrapper or a frame. And it's this, I am Yahweh, or in our translation, I am the Lord. There it is in verse 6, I am the Lord, capital letters. And in verse 8, he finishes it with the same phrase, I am the Lord. Now, we shouldn't skip over this. This isn't just God reminding them of what his name is. It's really profound because in the ancient world, kings making authoritative big announcements would say, I am Matthew or I am Esau Hedon. So this is God speaking as a great king, reminding Moses of his majesty and his authority. But also when God uses this phrase in the Bible, more often than not, he's reminding his people of his commitment. His undying faithfulness to them as the great husband. So the great king, the great husband, is now setting his promises in this framework. 
It's like a diamond set in a ring of gold. God is saying, this is who I am, and this is what I will do. But what he's promising isn't really new. It's basically a reaffirmation of what he said to Moses earlier on in the book. It's not plan B. It's just plan A, underlined with a highlighter in bold. And at this point, Moses wobbles again. And he goes back to the old objection. Did you notice it? Look with me at um, verse 30. Moses said to the Lord, Since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Faltering lips. He's saying I've got a speech impediment. Now, we don't know what it was. It obviously undermined Moses' confidence. might have sounded a bit like this. You want me to go back to Pharaoh. It's quite hard to get a message across like that. He said, I'm not the most persuasive guy in the world. I didn't have a career in sales. I was a shepherd. Just look at what happened the last time I went to Pharaoh. Now, everyone hates me. You know the Israelite foreman? They've got my face on a dartboard at the back of the staff canteen. You really want me to go back for round two with Pharaoh? He's an animal. He's like Mike Tyson. He enjoys biting people's ears off. He savaged me. I don't want to get back in the ring. And can you blame him? Now, all of this raises a question. On what can Moses base his confidence to trust God and go back again? What guarantees does he have? that he should make this huge life decision and risk everything based on the promises of God. He has history. He has history. Now, you may have wondered why the writer stopped the story at verse 12 and inserted this family record, genealogy. It's not the sort of thing we usually encourage children in primary school to include in their stories, you know, telling a story about a dog and a cat and a gerbil and... Stop there and put in a long family tree. We don't do this. We, we might put something like this in an appendix, not slap bang in the middle of a story. And most people probably skip it when they read Exodus. But that's the point. It's there to kill the momentum, to stop the story, because genealogies are boring. And they're boring because they make us stop. They stop the story moving along and they make us stand still for a moment. They make us think. And what we're thinking about is a lot of dead people. The sons of Reuben, the sons of Simeon, and all that. Because genealogies are there to remind us of the past. They remind us of the rhythms of history. They put our lives and our problems in the perspective of time. I've got my, uh, my personal Bible here. And in the front... I've got some names written because this Bible had a kind of family record page printed in it. So I got the names from my mother, who'd done some family tree research, and I wrote them in here. Going back to great-grandparents, John William Malone, born in Didsbury, 19th of August, 1891, married Ellen Condren from Chalton in Hume, 10th of June, 1893, she was born. And on the other side... Leonard Diggle, from Barton-on-Irwell, who was born 15th of January 1886, and Rose Annie Godfrey, his wife, from Oldham, who was born 23rd of May 1886. 
other grandparents, John Hodgson Tyndall, Mary Blake, George Hampson. Do you know what? I don't know anything about these people. I don't know a single thing about them. They were born less than 150 years ago. They're my great-grandparents. I don't know anything about them. I guess their problems were just like mine. But no one knows now. They're buried somewhere in Southern Cemetery of Princess Parkway. We don't even know where the grave is. Now, Moses' genealogy goes back even further, over 400 years, back to Israel himself. Verse 14, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn son of Israel. So the story here is tracing us back to the founder of the nation, Israel, whose name was Jacob. Israel was a kind of nickname. And he's the founder of the nation. And then the story actually goes a bit forward from Moses to the grandson of Aaron, a guy called Phinehas. That's how it ends there in verse 25. Now, what is the writer doing with this particular piece of history? On one level, it's all about credentials. It's reassuring the readers that in spite of everything going pear-shaped, Moses and Aaron were the authentic leaders, and they do have the credentials to be the spokesman. But there's a bigger point than that. This is a record of human failure and a record of divine faithfulness. Why do I say human failure? Let me tell you about some of these names. Verse 14, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn son of Israel. Reuben, the firstborn. Remember when my first son was born, how proud I felt. Of course, in the ancient world, the firstborn son is the really big deal. He gets double the inheritance. But what a guy this Reuben was. One time when his father was away, he slept with his father's concubine, the kind of unmarried wife. Now, what does that sort of thing do to a family dynamic? Yeah, while you were out, uh, Reuben slept with your concubine, Dad. Here was Jacob's conclusion in Genesis 49. Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might, the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power, unstable as water. You should not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So Reuben was demoted from his position as the firstborn. What about the next two names? Simeon and Levi. Now these two guys had a beautiful sister called Dinah. One day she was out visiting some friends and a ruler in the area that she was visiting called Shechem took a fancy to her, grabbed her and violated her. Then he fell in love with her afterwards and he wanted to marry her. When these brothers heard about it, they were filled with grief and fury because of their sister. So they worked up a plot. They tricked this guy Shechem into having all the males in his household circumcised so that he could be just like them and that they could all be one big happy family. Genesis 34 says this. Three days later, while all of the men were still in pain, Simeon and Levi... Dinah's brothers took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. Then they looted the city and took everything of value. Now, what is that going to do to a family dynamic? Here's their dad's response. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. 
He, they jeopardise the entire family and its future. What about verse 15 here? Look at that shawl. Sons of Simeon include Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. Right, this is the last thing that you should be reading in the family tree. The son of a Canaanite woman? These are the worst people in the land, the ones that they're supposed to be kept distinct from. And here it is, Simeon sleeping around and has a son by her. Even the last name on the list, the name of Phineas, is a reminder of one of the worst episodes in Israel's history, which comes later on in Numbers 25. While the Israelites were staying in a place called Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with the Moabite women and worshipping their gods. This isn't that long after God had rescued them from Egypt, and Phineas was the one who had to put a stop to it by taking vigorous action. You see what's going on in this family tree? Talk about a dysfunctional family. It's like a soap opera. It's a record of human failure. And yet, in spite of this, it's a record of divine faithfulness. Because God had made a promise. He promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that their descendants would grow to be a great nation. And he kept the promise. He promised that he would free them from captivity and give them a home of their own. He promised that he would be their God. and They would be his people. And through all the changing scenes of life, through all the twists and turns of history... God was faithful to his promise. This genealogy is a testimony to the fact that if God makes a promise, he obligates himself. He can't break his word. He's kind of imprisoned by his own promise. He can't go back on it. So the genealogy is a massive reassurance to everyone. It's still on track. Whatever it looks like now, God is keeping his word. He's working his promises out. There's continuity. So, what about you? Have you heard God's call to trust him and follow him, follow Jesus? Have you heard God's call to trust him with your whole life and live your life based on him? Are you weighing up the choice right now to follow Jesus or stay in Egypt? Those of you here are Christians. Are you like Moses, maybe in the darkest hour of the night and full of doubts and fears, not really feeling like trusting God anymore? Are you, maybe even like the people, so discouraged that your spirit is crushed and broken? Well, what have you got from God? You haven't got instant relief, which is probably what you're asking for. You haven't got instant deliverance, much as we would like it. What you've got is promises and history. Here are some promises that Jesus Christ made. They all contain the words, I will. He said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He predicted his death on the cross, and he said, I will rise on the third day. Luke 22, I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. The kingdom is coming. I will drink the fruit of the vine then. John 4, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will, be, will never be thirsty. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. 
For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. John 14, he promised his followers, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. There are seven I wills of Jesus Christ. Promises. The New Testament is full of them, rich with them. So the question is, do you believe him? Do you believe him when he says, everyone that comes to me, I will accept? Do you believe him when he says that he would lay his life down on behalf of his friends? Do you believe him when he says he'll come again? Do you believe him when he says, Matthew 28, I am with you always to the very end of the age? That's the promise. So on what can we base our confidence as Christians? We're a bit like Mike Lehan there. We're engaged, but we're not quite married yet. We're building our life and making these huge decisions, following Jesus, and we, we haven't actually met him, seen him. What is it based on? Our confidence. The witness of history. Our confidence is not a matter of fingers crossed and hope for the best. It's based on the history of what God has done in Jesus. My confidence today is not based on my own religious experiences. It's based on an empty tomb that eyewitnesses saw and they knew that Jesus had kept his word. He rose from the dead, never to die again. Our hope as Christians is not based on shifting sands and our own experiences and our own circumstances, but on the rock of what Jesus has done in history. So let me ask you, will you take your stand on the promises of God? Will you take your stand on the promises, the word of Jesus? Base your life on it. Risk everything for him. Follow him even when the chips are down. Love him. Put him first. And ask him to be your saviour. If that's something that you have never done, but you really ought to and you know that now, then I'd love to talk to you after this service and pray with you. And if, it's, if you are a Christian but you've been in a dark place, and struggling, then again, it would be great to talk to you and pray that through with you. Let's pray together.